with this long-lived RNA or synthetic polynucleotide, single-stranded polynucleotide, um, the, the, uh, the pharmacokinetics, the degradation of it, um, the clearance of it in your body is super important if one is interpreting the range of adverse events that are temporally, in other words, with time mm. associated with the administration of the drug. Okay, so we have been told, and it has been uh, the dogma, that, for instance, as you analyze bears or fill in the blank database, that we should really not focus on any adverse events, particularly things that look like acute adverse events as opposed to the delayed autoimmune things, um, but acute adverse events like um, myocardial damage um, that occur after about two weeks. Those are considered probably just background noise from whatever the physiology of the person was because it was assumed that the RNA only lasted a very brief period of time. Now we functionally have to go back, if, if we were being honest, if we were acting with integrity, scientific integrity, we would go back and say, oh, darn, we missed that. We need to go back and analyze the full profile of data and adverse events and recalculate the adverse event rate because we now know that this thing sticks around in your body for at least two months. So okay, there's that. This is part of the gaslighting, right? So, you, okay, the people who are still honest enough to try to interpret this and have the technical chops to understand what they're looking at, this was some kind of red herring. Because if you were trying to build a model, you've got all of these people who believe that they have had uh, injury yeah. from the vaccine. What is the injury? How plausible is it that it came from the vaccine? Well, if you don't know that the mRNA isn't mRNA and that it might be sticking around a very long time, right? Then the point is those the likelihood that those those delayed reactions are the result of the vaccine skyrockets. Right. So if you didn't know that, then the point is you think, well, I don't it, know. it means that all of our prior interpretation about correlation between adverse events and and uh, the inoculation, I'm going to call it. I'm really trying to move away from calling these vaccines. Yep. They really no longer meet the criteria of vaccines. They're more like some sort of immunotherapeutic inoculation. We could, again, yep. language matters. It does. Okay. Um, uh, and, and the term vaccine is clearly overly broad. Um, now I'm one, uh, so we, we, we must, if we are acting with integrity, we must go back and reevaluate our prior assumptions and reevaluate the safety database in light of this cell paper, which by the way, they totally buried the lead. If you look at the title of that cell paper, you would never guess that it had this crucial data about the pharmacokinetics of the RNA or the relative levels of expression of the spike protein compared to uh, um, in the naturally infected in your circulating blood. Um, you wouldn't know it if you read the title. Surprise. Right. In fact, um, I, I didn't know this until I heard you mention it out loud and put the stuff together and it was so so now there's clear. another i said there's two branches to this yeah um you've 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 kind of mined the um uh implications in cellular immunology which we all knew um historically uh the other one is that's most worrisome and and uh this has to do with pattern recognition putting together pieces of information that are fragmented in the landscape 
there's this observation um, that um, uh, has been made that there are uh, migratory white blood cells in your body that we'll call for, for simplicity, we'll call them macrophage, okay. um, that move around in your body and control, you know, there's dendritic cells, a whole bunch of different flavors of these things, as yep. you know, um, but we'll just call them macrophages and, uh, or monocytes. And there is a subpopulation of these that you can pull out of people's bodies and you can analyze them in flow cytometry, cool tech, um, that continue to uh, um, carry spike protein for a very long period of time, months. And they have markers on their surface by flow cytometry that are consistent with an unusual activated hyperinflammatory state. Okay, so you have migratory white blood cells post-vaccination in your body, which continue to maintain spike protein. So they have it on their surface. Is that because and they're- And in, in their cytoplasm. In their most, cytoplasm. Most are, they, are, they, are they displaying and actually, it? Spike, no, well, they may or may, I don't think they display them. I think what we're talking about is cytoplasmic and intranuclear spike, it turns out, when it's cytoplasmic, can be translocated across the nuclear membrane yeah. and has other effects on key um, metabolic pathways and uh, uh, gene regulatory pathways in the nucleus of these monocytes that have been so um, altered some way. And the problem is how, how to comprehend that because um, monocytes typically aren't readily transfected in these systems. And they are certainly not infected. That's been one of the paradoxes in thinking about antibody-dependent cellular side. I'm sorry, about antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, when we talk about that yeah. process like dengue, dengue blows open monocytes that uh, because of antibody coding that allows them to uh, use the FC receptor and get infected. That does not happen with this virus. Why are we getting spike protein in a long-lived fashion in these monocytes? They could be taking it up from the environment, but then we would see the same phenotype with the natural infection. Maybe we would see it more with the vaccine because you got more spike, but it's a conundrum. Here's the theoretical possibility that goes back to your metaphor of the fiberglass log. Okay. Okay. If these RNAs are present, in the cytoplasm of these cells that will be targeted. Yeah. Well, the way that they usually get targeted is they, they're triggered to undergo a self-destructive sequence. You know, it's as if uh, Captain Kirk says, hit the auto-destruct button. Well, that auto-destruct button for the enterprise triggers something called apoptosis, apoptosis as you know. Apoptosis, yeah. Um, and uh, so apoptosis happens and in the nucleus fragments yep. and uh, the cell fragments into vesicles largely. Yep. These little packages that have GORP from inside the cell inside of them. Okay, they're kind of like liposomes. Yep. It's kind of like the cell blows up and releases a whole bunch of different liposomes that have inside of it whatever was in the cell before. Yep. Okay, and what happens to those liposomes? Other cell types, mononuclear cells, yep. phagocytes, macrophage, come in and they clean up all that debris, all that blown up uh, enterprise. Yep. Um, and uh, if those fiberglass logs, so this is totally hypothetical. Yeah. If those fiberglass logs have no ready enzymatic way 
to be turned into uh, forest litter. Yep. Um, they will still be there sitting in those vesicles. Absolutely. And if those vesicles are taken up by monocytes and processed, then there's a good chance that those fiberglass logs are going to be just because we know this with fiberglass. It's a great metaphor. Um, you know, it's like talking about uh, um, any of these uh, fibrous molecules. Uh, they, they will break free and potentially could then have a secondary transfection a secondary yeah, delivery of that it. RNA into whole new cell types that are phagocytic cell types. Phagocytic cell types. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but to the extent that we understand anything about the vaccine injured, monocytes are very frequently implicated, right? They have diseases that affect the functioning of this very important cell type involved in effectively garbage collection throughout the body all the time. Yeah, so the vaccine injured, if we're going to open that can of worms just a little bit, one of the things that has been fascinating, uh, you recall back in the day, we had this conversation and we were both being so careful because we didn't get want to have what happened to us that has subsequently happened. So uh, there's a great example of we self-censored. Um, and it didn't do us any good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we might as well, might just, as well just let it hang out. Talk. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so we talked about these uh, buddies that I had back in the day until I had that podcast uh, that I used to talk to all the time at the FDA on a regular basis, uh, weekly. Um, and we would talk about the adverse events, as you recall. We talked about this and in, in my communication back to the FDA through them. And uh, one of in, in that this group working together with this interesting biostatistician called Bill Dumache, who worked for this company called Oracle that knows something about database analysis. Uh, and he being the lead biostatistician particularly knows something about biologic databases analysis, um, was the guy who together with this small group uh, did the initial analysis of available data as a pilot project, it wasn't really sanctioned by the FDA, which detected this uh, characteristic adverse event at a time when no one, when all the party line was, there was no major adverse events called myocarditis and pericarditis. So it was Bill Dumache working with those same characters that d first discovered this signal. Then he told it to the CDC wouldn't listen to him. And so they told it to the Israelis and the Israelis checked their database. At the time, CDC was totally dependent on the CD on the Israeli database because they knew their VAR system was a hot mess. And then Israelis confirmed it and the CDC confirmed it and then it became the party line. That was the cascade. At the same time, these same people also knew that there was a major signal for um, uh, shingles and other viral reactivation. So we have these DNA viruses, many of us, and in the case of shingles, anybody that's had chicken pox. Yep. Uh, so that's those of us of a certain age, um, pretty much all had it yep. uh, until the vaccine got rolled out. Uh, and um, we have latent uh, virus, DNA virus, residing in our neurons, in our basal ganglia, along our spinal cord, et cetera, that under certain types of stimuli uh, will um, crawl down those neurons down to uh, this cutaneous region, the skin region that those neurons serve. And those viruses will emerge at the end of those neuron tips and start replicating in our skin. And this causes a little pox, mm -hmm. a little vesicle. We call it 
shingles. We originally called it chicken pox when we had it. Yep. And so it has this very unique distribution depending on what a nerve, where a nerve goes. And this reactivation of chicken pox is something that's really clear and apparent. And it was known back then when we had our conversation that one of the other major side effects was viral reactivation that and, and shingles and Epstein-Barr virus. Epstein-Barr, yeah. Um, and that has never been acknowledged by the public health service worldwide. But we all know it is a major side effect, just like they never acknowledge. You recall back in the day, we talked about the dysmenorrhea, the alteration of menstrual cycle. Yeah. We talked about the ovarian targeting with the lipids. And that was denied. And shockingly, I still can't believe it. The, the public health service went back to that mid 20th century language that women were being hysterical. Right. You remember that? They, they I don't literally, well, they I know literally that, did it. I, I know that from history. I don't they know that they literally did it. They, they used they used the language of hysterical women to explain the frequent reporting of of dysmenorrhea and menometrorrhagia associated with the vaccine. Um, but they had never come to terms with the viral reactivation, latent viral reactivation, DNA virus reactivation. And now, so now when we talk about, as you were, I'm sorry for this digression, no. when we were talking about uh, the post-vaccination syndrome, what I hear from the frontline docs is that um, the bulk of those patients that they're having present to them. Yeah. Um, and remember, I have a bias sampling. I hang out with the doctors that are willing to treat patients. Right. <laughs> um, with these, uh, you know, horse medicines and such like. Okay. So patients come to them. Patients that have uh, damages that they have not been able to get addressed by the standard medical system, by the docs that are within the system and within the, let's say, hypnosis to be gentle. Um, uh, and so... Uh, so they have a, a selection bias and the people come to them, but the vast majority of those that are coming to them with complaints of post-vaccination syndrome are experiencing Epstein-Barr virus reactivation. It's a subset that have the shingles. Now, COVID will also reactivate Epstein-Barr. Absolutely. And will, is also associated with shingles. Yeah. And that's the key part of this. Uh, it's so important about this cell paper documenting that the level of spike protein produced systemically in your blood plasma after receiving the inoculation is significantly higher. And I don't mean just statistically, I mean like, wow. Um, then one observes in patients after natural infection, which of course is coming through their mucosa typically, their oropharynx or their nasopharynx, and by the way, also their eyes. That's why masks don't work. Mm. Um, the whole mask logic is based on a fallacy. Interesting. That there are only two portals of <laughs> infection. Hmm, minor problem. <laughs> quite the oversight, but okay. <laughs> um, you know, you can't make it up. No. Uh, um, so, yeah, you do see it, and you seem to see it less frequently uh, than with the vaccinations. And, and if you buy into the thesis that we were resoundingly criticized for, uh, that spike is a toxin, um, uh, you know, by all the fact checkers that had not graduated. All the, with the uh, biology PhDs degree. at the AP. <laughs> <laughs> or even worse, and right. logically AI. Um, 
Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that worked for Thomson Reuters. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so um, that thesis that well, these things happen with the virus, um, so you can't discriminate between whether they happen um, post-vaccination, consequent to somebody having had an occult virus infection, or due to the vaccine. Um, yet we have these strong correlations between um, the vaccine recipients who have no history or evidence of prior infection, and they often seem to see these adverse events at higher frequency and often um, of longer duration or um, uh, with, with a more florid uh, presentation. Um, so that, that, that gets to this problem of how do we sort the needle, you know, the um, chicken from the egg kind of, um, but uh, I'm, I'm compelled and so are many other physicians that uh, are, are op have their eyes open, let's say. Right. Um, that uh, we do have these, uh, this spectrum of post-vaccination syndrome. It, there's, a, there's a paper out that looks at the spectrum of syndromes of uh, the post-viral syndrome and the post-vaccination syndromes and compares those symptoms. And statistically, you cannot differentiate. If you look at population with, with the post-viral syndrome, the population with the post-vaccination syndrome and their list of symptoms, you cannot distinguish them. Okay. And that gets to my point. What is the commonality? You know, we're, we're people that live in a, yeah. in a logical world. What is the common thing, uh, you know, between A and B? This spike. goes back to Sesame Street. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. It's spike. And um, so we, to this, just to put a nail in this one. Yeah. Um, that gets back to my point about the nature of spike the two-point mutations were not put in there to mitigate safety concerns. Full stop. Yeah. I tracked that documentation down because I was getting hit so hard on with, with that claim. Absolutely no documentation that those two proline mutations were put in there for anything to do with safety. It's all the literature says. It's, Going back, it was there for immunogenicity. It was there to improve immunogenicity. Yeah. Okay. So that that's counterfact checked okay. as false. Um, and then, uh, well, no, the vaccine spike is different from the viral spike. And um, so with the exception of those two point mutations, that's a true statement, except that the circulating S1 subunit, which is what's in your blood, which is what's measured in this paper that I'm referring to in cell is identical. And furthermore, circulating S1 fragment of spike, which has the receptor binding domains, which bind to ACE2, blah, 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 and, and bind to platelets and all that stuff, okay? Those are identical between the original Wuhan strain and the vaccine. Now, they are not identical. The subsequent evolved, so for instance, if you were to look at Omicron, the sequence in the Omicron spike is different. Right, which suggests strongly that the variants have been driven, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No question. I, I, you know, I concur with Gert on that. Yeah. The place that I, I branch off from Gert a little bit is um, he's making a very strong inference. I'm using language that we understand the meaning of. 
precise language. Yeah. He's making a strong inference. So that's related to a hypothesis, but kind of stronger. It implies that there is some um, intrinsic bias, frankly, um, in, in a particular hypothesis to say it's a strong inference. Um, uh, it can be appropriate bias, but in, in Gertz, uh, um, warnings about the probability and potential timeline for the evolution of a more pathogenic, more highly infectious variant. Um, he is, he is, uh, building that, um, inference based on, um, a stack of inferences having to do with the selective pressure forces at play here, having to do with um, uh, patterns of glycosylation, which will evolve very readily, um, uh, as well as specific sequences, and the role of antibodies and non-neutralizing antibodies in selecting for these um, alterate, as I understand his thinking, these altered patterns of glycosylation. And, in, and he's making a statement that this will occur um, and a specific timeline associated with it. I prefer to say that it is a risk. That it could occur, yeah. Um, and uh, I wouldn't want to uh, stake my reputation on saying it's gonna occur two months or eight months from now or whatever the, the number is. And uh, it could very well not manifest. Um, so um, I'm, I find myself because I'm Gerd is a friend uh, and a scientific colleague who I highly respect. And so people come to me, including Dell, Big Tree, and say, okay, Robert, what can you say about this? And I have to say, um, it is a, a plausibility. And I have to, uh, I personally categorize it in the domain of risk identification, um, not uh, a probabilistic model. Yeah, I, I agree. It may be that Garrett knows something uh, that he hasn't conveyed apparently to you or to me yet, but I do feel like the risks he's describing are very real, but I don't know. The evolutionary part is, I think, hard to predict here. And anyway, it's my I, bias too. I'd, I'd be curious. It's, it's a multivariate system. Yeah. It's a highly complex multivariate system. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm totally with him that uh, mass vaccination in the face of this enormous amount of uh, infectious pressure yeah. is, uh, um, we could say madness. I think it's, it's at the intersection of ignorance and hubris. It was wildly reckless. Um, and I, I think he was, I want to hesitate to say clearly, but it feels like he was quite right about the driving of the proliferation of variants. That... And, and so trying to be an objective, uh, you know, how it is in science. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we try to live in this world of multiple working hypotheses and then design experiments or look for natural experiments to allow us to, to throw out uh, as many hypotheses as we can, leaving us with the one that we can't throw out yep. as the probable, um, right? Um, so uh, this uh, um, driving towards evolution of the escape variant that is the Omicron series, let's say, um, has some anomalous findings associated with it that um, get straight to your core competence. Um, as you probably know, 
when you build the phylogenetic tree structure for the relatedness of these viruses, using the standard software, and I'm choosing those words carefully, yeah. um, and let's go back, loop back to that in a moment. Using the standard software, it projects that the origin of the Omicron uh, branch from that evolutionary tree that we call SARS-CoV-2 uh, um, precedes uh, the evolutionary branch that gave rise to, for instance, Delta, Delta and the prior yeah. variants. Um, so that's a conundrum. Uh, how can that happen? One hypothesis that I'm aware of is that, and this will get to your, again, to your core confidence, I'm playing to your, your expertise, is as you know, um, evolution is not always linear in terms of uh, changes over time. In a given, in a stable ecosystem, in a stable niche, um, you can use uh, um, base alterations as a sort of molecular clock, mm -hmm. right? Sort of. I mean, the, all of these molecular clock things have assumptions in them that are Bingo. rule of thumb at best. Bingo. And those, to the best of my knowledge, those core models that are used are built on the thesis that that rate of molecular evolution in a large viral population is relatively consistent. And yet we know um, with our backgrounds in evolutionary biology that in fact, going back to Darwin's finches, yeah. uh, that what often happens is when a, a organism encounters a new evolutionary niche, yeah. it will undergo an explosive evolution and all yeah. presumptions we have about the rate of evolution go straight out the door. Yep. Um, and, and you have these evolutionary bursts. And that is really one of the big stories of modern evolution, of modern evolutionary biology is the realization that, that you have these interactions between niche availability and evolutionary bursts, and you can't make those assumptions about constant rate of evolution um, and constant rate of molecular change. So um, it is possible that those phylogenetic trees represent a artifact of an underlying assumption in the calculations having to do with the rate of mutation. The, um, uh, the thing that plays to that thesis, the supporting um, data uh, in my mind, is that um, concurrent with the emergence of Omicron it, with its uh, uh, molecular characteristics, and by the way, we don't characterize the glycosylation pattern, we just characterize the protein sequence, so that's a blind spot we have, uh -huh. um, is that um, Omicron also was noted to have shifted its tissue targeting. Now, if you, if you pick at, with Gert and you dive into this, he has uh, a construction around that that shift had to do with these innate antibodies that are non-blocking, driving, um, that evolutionary change. But for whatever reason, there was a shift in the tissue trophism from deep lung, which is known in flu and other respiratory viruses to be associated with a more highly pathogenic virus. And you can take an H1N1, this is where, where it was really made clear, was H1N1 has a variant that is very deep lung targeting and it has another variant that is not that is more upper airway and oropharyngeal. And the one that is not upper airway is less pathogenic. Um, and so Omicron, concurrent with its emergence, 
and its incredible infectivity uh, has this shift um, from its tissue trophism to more of a upper airway oropharyngeal, which is why the paradox of it's more infectious and less pathogenic, which on, on face, when you look at that, you go, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. It had this shift. And so that means if we go back to the evolution yep. and bursting, what something happened that caused it to get a new niche. Yes, uh, I would also point out, this is one of these places where I feel like um, the, the lack of transparency around what was going on in Wuhan that likely produced this is, uh, is criminal. Okay, because, that's, a, that's a great segue to the third hypothesis. Well, hold on, I just want to put this on the table. The point is, th this virus ain't normal. Absolutely. It behaves so bizarrely. And the ways that it behaves bizarrely are at least to some degree pretty easily mapped onto, hey, we were doing some stuff in the lab and we accidentally selected for a bunch of other stuff along the way because, of course, we were. Or would. we intentionally selected for it. Well, they no, they intentionally selected for certain things. But if they ran serial passage experiments in ferrets and humanized mice in order to make a virus that was uh, more capable infectious of in humans. more infectious in humans... What they did was accidentally trained it for uh, the ability to jump species. The, the fact that they probably did it in, in, what, in, in saying that you're giving the benefit of the doubt, just so we're clear on that. Right. They also, um, if you take, let's say that they used ferrets, which seems likely given that this virus actually does transmit between individual ferrets and individual minks to other ferrets and minks. Um, if you cage minks together and then you allow them to infect each other the natural rules that a virus would evolve based on don't apply right a ferret in the wild that is infected with the virus the virus has an interest in not wrecking the ferret because the ferret has to be successful enough at doing ferret stuff that it lives to spread the virus and so take for example the loss of sense of smell that seems to come with covid so frequently if you remove the sense of taste and smell from a ferret in the wild, it's going to die. Yeah. It's going to starve very quickly because it depends on those things to find food. If you do it in a cage where it's eating ferret chow, right, then it can be falling all over its neighbors, infecting them. And the point is what that does to the virus is it removes the value of being efficient, right? If the virus gets spread best when it infects only those tissues involved in transmitting it and it leaves the ferret otherwise intact, if that's a good virus in the wild, in the lab, it's a very different thing. Yeah. And so, so my point would be when we're looking at Omicron and Delta and saying it's funny because Omicron isn't the descendant of Delta, we're looking at a virus that is likely, that is more likely than most viruses to have leapt species, could have easily leapt into mice because it probably was already trained in mice and so had some experience there and leapt back. That's not something you would expect normally, but we have to leave that possibility open in this case. And then when you talk about uh, it moving tissues within the body, well, we've trained it to have this extremely broad tropism, whereas nature would have narrowed that tropism. And so we shouldn't be too surprised by that either. So my basic feeling is, look, we know a lot about viral evolution. We've got to be really cautious about applying it to this virus because we did funny things to this virus that nobody has explained to us yet. Fair enough. And, and uh, you just touched on the fourth hypothesis. So the, the third hypothesis with Omicron 
I think Omicron is a fascinating case study mm-hmm. um, in its emergence in this context. Um, and, you know, it's almost, if you believe in divine providence, it, its occurrence last winter was pretty close to divine providence, if that's how you're wired. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but for those of us that have to live in an analytical world of data that we can perceive and analyze, and we're not allowing ourselves to invoke the divine as we try to logic our way through these things, trying to... Yep. Uh, I don't think you're going to try, offend try the creator. To, try, but trying no. to square the circle here. <laughs> it's not the creator I'm worried about. Yeah. Um, it's this my followers. Um, uh, so in any case, um, uh, you mentioned uh, the um, species reservoir and interspecies transfer, which is absolutely one of the hypotheses for emergence of Omicron. Um, particularly since it was detected in Africa. The contrapositive for that is that uh, it, it was first detected. That doesn't mean it didn't um, appear before then. It was first detected in these four diplomats that had a, a travel history that is not disclosed. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, three of them were European and one of them was Asian. Um, uh, so, uh, it, it formally, since we know it infects cats um, and it infects ungulates, ergo white-tailed deer, for example, yep. um, in, in the context of, of Central Africa and Southern Africa, there are plenty of both, uh, and not to mention the field mice and everything else. Uh, so it had a rich uh, um, uh, palette of, yes. of potential alternative hosts. All right. Well, I want to be careful there because there's a, there's an important distinction that people typically miss. This virus jumps to a huge range of species. We've seen that. There are only a few that it jumps successfully within, and it has to do both before this becomes relevant to the story. Now, I think we've seen it in deer. I'm not sure we've seen it in... Felids. Bolo- uh, we've seen replication between felids. Oh, okay. I don't know that. I think, I think it does um, transmit. We've seen this in zoos. I know it transmits to cats. I didn't know that yeah, it transmitted I'm, I'm between. I'm not sure them. about from from felid to felid. Okay, certainly goes uh, in weasels, ferrets, and minks. We've seen it. Um, I believe mice. Yes. So anyway, we've got a group, and that group is already large enough to tell us something. This Especially is a in the strange... context of Africa. Yes. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Are there any deer Plenty in of Africa? Yeah, there are, but they're uh, they're bovids, not cervids. But well, we got the spring buck and the lake. Yeah, okay, okay. So <laughs> they're primarily bovids. But nonetheless, A, we've got a virus that's really good at jumping between species and has successfully jumped uh, once across so, that so, barrier. So the point, not to get too deep in the weeds, the yeah. point is that it is theoretically possible that this thing could have uh, moved from a human host to an animal host, evolved, there could have been an evolutionary burst in the animal host, and then reinfected a human host, yeah. and been more adapted in terms of its ability to replicate and displace the dominant strains at the time, and it moved through Africa into South Africa, and then and throughout the world, or us, it's possible that the whole African link is only the, an artifact of having particularly astute virologists in South Africa who happen to make be, to be good at early detection. Yeah. Um, so we can't disambiguate those things. The other one that is the uh, 
conspiracy spooky version of this. So that third of the four hypotheses um, that I've heard uh, repeatedly from uh, colleagues who have intelligence community ties. Yeah. And, and I think we need to, for the audience, we need to just put a stake in the sand. Um, yes, I have dealt with many people that are in the intelligence community, including the CIA. I've actually been partnered with one in a prior corporation that we'd set up. Um, I've, I've spoken about this in Bobby's book. And one of the things that I know for a fact, um, I've discussed in detail the training that is performed, is that folks that are trained in the intelligence community are trained liars. That's what they are. They are trained to be very adept liars. So anytime I hear anything from somebody that I know is of the intelligence community as a culture, I know that I really can't place any validity on anything I hear. And anything I hear has to be triangulated. So that's the prelude to saying um, what I hear from multiple people, which may well just be an intelligence ploy, is that there were multiple viruses engineered in that Wuhan lab by the woman that is known as the Bat Lady, um, who had a prior title, apparently, that specifically acknowledged her leadership as being responsible for bioengineering biologic weapons. Apparently, this was her job title um, in Chinese in some way. Uh, and that there was something in the range of a dozen of these variants that were generated. And the thesis is that the parental Omicron may have been a, may actually have been a predecessor virus, which was part of the developmental program, and that those phylogenetic trees actually are accurate, um, and that it was intentionally or inadvertently uh, released. So that, I think that in the landscape of uh, the world that we now live in, as people committed to um, a multiple working hypothesis approach to trying to discern truth in biology, mm -hmm. which I think you and I share. Yep. Uh, um, and I'm referring to a, a, a science paper first published in the 1800s uh, that's kind of become fundamental to those of us you were mentioning the other day. Um, we need to retrain scientists. Uh, and, and one of those things we need to do is, is make them read that damn paper. Uh, so multiple working hypotheses. I think we have to acknowledge in that spectrum of alternative hypotheses that Omicron may also be synthetic. Yeah, that's that is a real possibility. And I would just add, you know, and I'm I know nothing about whether this might have happened, but the dynamics of Omicron open the possibility that some and by the way, I would think this is incredibly reckless, too, but that some white hat entity Released. You went there. Use that term. I was wondering. I was. Yeah. I was trying not to use that term because it evokes the whole QAnon world. Oh well, I don't know uh, that it evokes the QAnon yeah. world. But the point is, somebody that was sick and tired of seeing the COVID catastrophe unfold could have released this effectively a contagious I think it vaccine. Is, I think it's a formal possibility, and it was. It was odd. Um, these things that come out of Bill Gates's mouth, uh, sometimes I, you just got to wonder. Um, Why is he so darn predictive when... And, and that uh, after Omicron emerged, um, he gave interviews in which he was advocating for the development. And there was a 
programmatic initiative launched for development of infectious vaccines. So um, I need to say here that I've done a lot of thinking about infectious vaccines, and I can think of few ideas more dangerous um, because <laughs> what is totally irresponsible, what is inherent to such. I mean, you look, you could create Talk about hubris. Well, a it raises all kinds of questions about informed consent because you're going to. Pick it's, up, it's like informed consent doesn't matter anymore. Right. But. The worst part is at the point that you've created something, even if it behaves like a beautiful vaccine, even if it gives you sterilizing immunity and it's uh, safe, at the point that you have created a vaccine that jumps from individual to individual, what you've done is invited evolution to take that thing and modify it into something else. And, and, and you and I that live in this, uh, you know, with, with a daily awareness of the insane complexity not of biology, just biology at the organism level, but biology at the system level yep. of ecosystems. We're acutely aware that if you release an agent like this, um, that already we know, for example, has um, a ready ability to um, migrate between species. Um, they're, they're, it, that's why I get back to hubris. The, the idea that is being promoted by uh, various players, including apparently the chief science officer of the um, World Economic Forum, that we can apply artificial intelligence and other advanced digital technologies to predicting the behavior of complex biological systems is incredibly naive and arrogant. It's nuts. We are nowhere close. We are nowhere close. And to think that you've got it nailed down invites exactly the kind of disaster that we're facing. And it gets to the culture of um, uh, um, the uh, community that will engage in gain-of-function research. Right. Exactly. Now, I guess this is the last thing I, I want to mention that we got to set you free. Um, one of the contentious points surrounding the proliferation of variants. In my mind, I'm constantly running a the best simulation I can for what would have happened if we hadn't deployed these so-called vaccines. That's one question. We'll call them inoculations. Inoculations. Um, if we hadn't deployed them, where would we be now? That's one question. That's a good thought experiment. And the second question, so that question comes in two flavors. If we had deployed the repurposed drugs that seemed to be so effective and we hadn't deployed these uh, Which is what I advocated for and what my team was going hell-bent for leather for. Right. And which we got blocked by the FDA at every twist and turn for. Right. And, I, and this is the DOD. My feeling <laughs> is, but based on everything I know, I am not certain of this, but I believe um, we would have controlled COVID. We would have done so quickly. Um or in the worst case, herd immunity would have arisen without basically chasing these variants around the map. And um, can, I, can I put a pin in that just for a moment sure. to acknowledge you? Um, uh, this is another looping back to our prior podcast. Um, you stuck your neck way out and you said ivermectin could be our solution. And, and if we boil that down, let's take away the term 
or the specific molecule um, and generalize it. And let's imagine that you were saying a repurposed effective drug which um, uh, mitigated the symptoms and uh, essentially eliminated the mortality but did not completely eliminate viral replication could have eliminated the threat and resulted in elimination of the virus within the general population. And I challenged you on that. I yep. said, no, I disagree. I because that. it's not active as an antiviral. Okay. Yep. That's another one where I was wrong. It does have some degree of antiviral activity. I concede that point. And furthermore, um, if this leads right into what you were saying, that's why I wanted to put a pin in it for yep. a moment, just to acknowledge you, Thank um, you. that um, if we had an agent, whether it's a horse dewormer that's actually a Nobel Prize winning human medicine that's been administered in hundreds of millions of doses uh, with complete safety profile or some other thing. Uh, you know, God came out of the clouds and gave it to gave it us this thing and we deployed it and it had those characteristics. Um, I believe that I what I think you're leading up to, I think it is a reasonable thesis that um, the natural process of global virus circulation would have proceeded as a coronavirus does. Um, and we would have generated broad, durable, natural immunity, including a mucosal immune response mm. throughout the population. And we would have been then in a similar situation to other viral outbreaks where the, the, um, circulation of the virus would have been quenched. It would have gone into hiding in various reservoirs, including animal, and would periodically reemerge as the birth cohort expanded to such a point that it would sustain ongoing viral replication. In other words, R0 would grow greater than one because the birth cohort got larger yep. and it would circulate in what population? Young children. Okay, do young children have severe disease from COVID? Nope. No. Right. Do they die from COVID? No. Not if they aren't, you know, severely compromised, compromised yeah. on a death door from something else. Um, and, it, and it pushes them over the line. That's so, so that's the normal evolutionary biology of these worldwide pandemics is they circulate. Everybody gets hit. They develop natural immunity. Natural immunity, a highly evolved system, extremely complex, yeah. uh, provides a robust, broad-based immunity in almost all cases. Um, uh, and uh, then the virus would have uh, found its way to occult reservoirs um, and uh, then periodically reemerged to circulate in the world in the uh, young in, in the NIU population. population. Yeah. Um, and then uh, would again go quiet, typically for something like five to seven years, because that's how long it takes to build a big enough cohort. Yeah. And, and then it would crop up again. And we would have these little outbreaks where kids would get cold. So <laughs> here's the thing. In, in checking my model, which I really don't know if it's right or not, but... I think it, it probably is. I think it probably is, it is too. And I'd say, if we're going to live in this world of multiple hypotheses, it is certainly uh, a high on the probability it, it's live <laughs> but here's the thing that I, I i can't shake this they told us a story about what happened in japan that made less than no evolutionary sense right which, which remember was, what they told us the virus crashed and they said ah it committed evolutionary suicide um that basically somehow its mutation rate 
too high, didn't sustain, disappeared from the population. So I missed the storyline. Oh, it, it didn't make any sense. And so here's the thing. In Japan, something happened. Did they uh, start using ivermectin? No. They authorized that you could use ivermectin. And then they kind of did some strange Japanese right. thing where they kind of weren't bragging about what they were doing. But there was a culture in which ivermectin was happening, but it wasn't officially sanctioned, right? They sort of got under the radar. They didn't piss anybody off, but they used this very effective tool. Now, that... And they had actually had some other drugs, too, that were restricted, only available within Japan. I don't know about those. Yeah. I would imagine they used hydroxychloroquine, but I actually don't know about that either. Um, but in any case, the point is, if you had the full pharmacopoeia at your disposal and you used that, then you could tell some story about basically creating pressure on, if, especially if it's multiple drugs, right? You could create a pressure where the virus can't solve the evolutionary puzzle and it does collapse because, you know, it's... It, it, you're, but, but that is all predicated on the thesis that this is a highly lethal virus, which is what we were told all the way along. And the, down, the data are in. Right. Well, I don't, I don't know that it is. I just think if the data say what we think they do about the amount of virus circulating in Japan and then its surprising disappearance at the point that it was on the rise elsewhere on planet Earth, then the point is there's a missing factor from that story. That missing factor could be repurposed drugs. That could fill in the gap about why the virus failed evolutionarily. What can't is... The virus on its own failed because if you have successful variants and then yeah, you have the evolution it's, of less it's like, gibberish, it's gibberish. <laughs> right. And so the point is, OK, I don't know what that gibberish is hiding, but it's hiding something. And it's interesting that repurposed drugs show up in that story at the same moment. Yeah. And so then there's Uttar Pradesh. Exactly. Um, and uh, um, so what I found fascinating because I was tracking Uttar Pradesh closely because like you, I was friends with Pierre Corey. Mm hmm. Um, and so, and I, but unlike Pierre and perhaps unlike you, I don't know, I had connections in India. I don't. Um, uh, with this organization called uh, Reliance, uh, which is owned by this guy named Ambani, who actually is one of the board members at the World Economic Forum. Um, uh, so I own that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I hadn't been aware of those ties and their significance at the time. So I had these links into India um, and, uh, and I was carefully monitoring it. And there was this growing uh, um, crowd of voices observing that there was a treatment pack um, being made available, widely available, deployed in Uttar Pradesh. And there was a concurrent collapse of uh, morbidity and mortality from the virus. That doesn't mean the virus wasn't replicating, but we weren't seeing it in the hospitals and people weren't dying. Um, and, uh, and it was often ascribed to ivermectin being a component of those packs together with uh, zinc and other, you know, perhaps azithromycin or other things that was rumored. Yeah. And um, then there actually was a meeting between um, the White House and Modi, uh, the president had a meeting with Modi. And I know functionally after immediately after that happened, all communication channels regarding what was in there and what was happening in Uttar Pradesh collapsed. Yep. Um, 
And so that's correlation. It doesn't prove causation. Um, uh, and then uh, the press, there was a series of stories put out that asserted that this was a spurious association and they had no causal relationship. Um, and that there was actually no evidence that ivermectin was any of those packages. And I asked colleagues, can you please get me one of those packages or get me a photograph or whatever? And they said, no, that is not possible. We can't do that. It's not amazing. Okay. Yeah, it is amazing. We're talking um, about, we're talking about a province that has a population as big as the U S yeah. And, and some, and that is observing a, uh, apparent resolution to what had been a burgeoning major public health crisis mm -hmm. um, with a precipitous drop-off after some discrete event that occurred. A precipitous drop-off not mirrored in the rest of the country. Right. Um, and uh, so um, this went on. And then I had a friend who actually traveled to the region. And, and as she was traveling to the region, uh, um, uh, I asked her, can you please get me an image? Um, and uh, and this happened, and it was incontrovertible. The word ivermectin <laughs> was right there on the packaging. Okay, and 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 I think this may have been the first image that that provided you know irrefutable proof that ivermectin was in those packages. And it's you know funny how these things happen. Um, uh, and and then that was spread around, but still the official position was no disclosure of what was in those, uh, you know, bubble pack, um, like a Z-pack yeah. uh, products that were distributed. Now there are more images of that that have come out and it's generally acknowledged, although the official party line, as you know, continues to be that ivermectin doesn't work and it shouldn't be used and it's toxic <laughs> humans, all of which is right. a lie. All of which is a lie. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, it, it bears mentioning here that, the, you know, the world of people who aren't paying close attention, of course, leapt at the TOGETHER trial, you know, the supposedly largest. Which was another designed to fail um, uh, clusterfrack. Uh, clusterfrack, I like that. <laughs> um, well, yeah, designed to fail. But I mean, the funny thing is that the story, it looks, it looks to me, having looked at all of these things now, that um, pharma is very good at building trials uh, to fail. Designing them to fail. It's, it's easy. It's well, it's easy, um, easy unless you're up against a drug like ivermectin, where each of the trials that was designed to fail <laughs> failed to fail. And then they had to fudge the presentation in order to make it look like it had failed, which happened in the get together which, trial. Which is also. A, a gentle way of saying ivermectin continually exceeded expectations. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. And, um, you know, in its, I mean, in its annual review, <laughs> exceeds expectations. Exceeds expectations. Yes. It's that annoying student who uh, just slam dunks everything, doesn't need any teaching. All right. Well, Dr. Malone, it is always a pleasure. I am. Uh, I am just so, my heart is warmed watching you fight the good fight continually and bring something to it that no one else can as the inventor of the core technology in those vaccines. You bring an understanding of the way these things work that is um, so deep that um, it's really irreplaceable. And I am... I'm, of course, livid, livid at the slanders that you have endured 
and the pretense that you are somehow elevating your uh, contribution beyond what it actually was. And I will point people, before we close out here, I will say, I did not know him at the time. He's now a good friend of mine. Um, but Alexandros Marinos checked very oh, thoroughly to see whether you were, in <laughs> fact, the inventor of the uh, mRNA technologies at the heart of these vaccines. And mind you, you had no hand in creating the vaccines, right. nor would you have deployed them. But um, you did. You, you he, were he there. Ran it to and, ground. and you have the receipts. <laughs> so... Um, in any case, uh, the slanderers will continue to slander you, but thank you for standing up for so us. So before we close, because yep. I always like to close on a, on a positive, um, uh, and since we're on that thread, um, which is the slander and defamation, mm -hmm. um, as Dell observed yesterday, uh, all press is good press, to paraphrase his... his uh, I don't agree with him on that front, but I, I, he did say it, yeah. Um, when I was deleted from Twitter... Um, and LinkedIn, um, uh, my Getter account started exploding. And then we went on Rogan and uh, my Substack just took off like a shot. Um, every time I get hit um, with one of these fact checks, it's as if they reactivate enthusiasm uh, for my uh, position. So what, what Dell was talking about, I'm experiencing. That doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. And that, for instance, the uh, defamation in the New York Times, in which they went after my wife, um, uh, that that um, that's particularly unpleasant, um, and it is hurtful. Uh, but um, I it I I as I said in this uh, article, um, what does it feel like to be vindicated? Um, it's been entirely unpleasant, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. All right. Well, I um, I quite agree with you on the do it again in a heartbeat thing. Uh, I have, of course, endured quite a bit of slander myself. The one point I would argue isn't quite right is that it may be that by being thrown off of Twitter and uh, slandered in the various places that you reach more people. But the problem is it's very hard to know who you're not reaching because of those things. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, that's the attention is to create a comfortable pathway to, um, uh, allow those who are, who have cognitive dissonance, who have psychological pain in encountering ideas and thoughts um, and data that is caused them psychological discomfort, um, cognitive dissonance. Um, it allows them a pathway that they don't ever have to have that pain. That's the logic, if you look at it, underlying the, the censorship. Well, that, that's part of it though. The, my concern is, and I should probably just say, when I started uh, with the lab leak, looking at these questions and finding myself in a very uncomfortable, quite heterodox position. When I became a dissident, I started looking at all of the places where the lies were blatant, right? Lab leak, repurposed drugs and the treatment of COVID, vaccine safety and effectiveness. And what I realized was if we could successfully reveal the truth on those fronts so that it was generally understood 
right? We got there with lab leak, right? I believe people are waking up to the fact that safe and effective does not describe these so-called vaccines. Ivermectin is the sticky wicket for interesting reasons. Hopefully it will eventually come. But when we get there, we will be able to say, aha, now you know how deep the rot is in the system. You've seen university science fail. You've seen all of journalism fail. You've seen government fail. You've seen the international public health apparatus fail. You've seen the tech sector complicit, right? You've seen the entire system is corrupted. At that point, we will understand something about what we have to fix if we are to survive. Now, by driving you away from the mainstream locations, even if more people find you on Getter, to the extent that you have been, in some sense, sidelined from the mainstream conversation, that's a hazard to us ever crossing that threshold. And so I, I, would, I would advise you and others who feel like, well, it's working out anyway, their thing is backfiring on them, to realize we need you at the core. And because we need you at the core, I would just ask you to be be careful. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'd rather not be assassinated. That's why I have personal security. Yeah. Um, uh, and my wife especially would rather I didn't get assassinated. I, I bet that's um, right. The, but, okay, I can't leave this. i got to keep picking at this. Um, uh, Steve Kirsch, we both know, mm -hmm. um, convened a conference. It took a uh, heavy lift. Um including reminding the provost that he actually has an auditorium at MIT named after him. Uh, but eventually they relented and they allowed this uh, conference to occur on the MIT campus. Um, it was very sparsely attended except by the conference participants, but it was live streamed. Um, it, there was an attempt to get um, voices that were, um, let's say, aligned with the narrative, academics in addition to uh, members of the Great Barrington Declaration, et cetera. Um, so we would call those dissidents um, uh, or truth tellers, depending on where you are. Um, point is, um, I listened to the statements very carefully of some of these academics that um, were willing to participate, but continued to be invested in the uh, solutions and explanations that we call the dominant paradigm. Uh, and um, what I heard was some acknowledgement of culpability and a justification for a truth and reconciliation committee akin to what happened in South Africa after the fall of apartheid. Beautiful. Um, and, uh, and I must tell you, I find that completely non-satisfying. <sighs> it is non-satisfying, but... Go ahead. Well, so that the, what I did not see, I heard the words of contrition. I did not see the behaviors of contrition. I heard the words of acknowledgement of hubris. I did not observe changes in that hubris. And my fear is that if we go down that path of some sort of a national reconciliation, what underlies that is a push to, to um, normalize and retain the behaviors and structures that have enabled this, and they will just be recapitulated again. And I fear that without that 
um, uh, if, if we, as we did with torture, if we fail uh, to prosecute, um, then uh, this, this will become normalized behavior within our culture. And I think it already has. And, um, and in terms of my role, um, I appreciate and I'm flattered by your compliments and your perception. Uh, um, but uh, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the warm embraces that I receive every day, including from the airline pilots that I travel. <laughs> um, but uh, I really don't think I'm that important. I think that what we're dealing with is way, way, way bigger than the nuance of my uh, knowing where the bodies are buried in the story of the mRNA vaccines. Well, I, I disagree with you. I think your importance is tremendous and maybe I didn't sum it up correctly, but I think because of what you understand, you can speak with confidence to things in the story that many of the rest of us who might suspect those things can't. And okay. I know that it's having that effect because I also am able to listen to what is said about you when you're not there. So I, I have some sense of what role you're playing in a way that you, you just can't. Yeah. Um, so you are vitally important. Well, thank you. Um, and you're- My wife will be very grateful to hear that. Uh, I don't think I don't think she'll be surprised, to be honest with you. Um, with respect to the truth and reconciliation thing, though, I'm, I'm going to withhold judgment because I hear you loud and clear. If the idea is this is how the thing escapes to recapitulate itself and pull this again on us, that can't be. On the other hand, if it recognizing if the individuals involved in this recognize that if they actually were held accountable for what they actually did, right, that they would be in for um, a serious Nuremberg-like reckoning, then they you might, are they in might much greater. Twice. Well, they might consider all kinds of things in order to avoid getting there. And so I don't like truth and reconciliation basically because I do feel like culpability requires these people have to be punished in order there has to be some accountability there has to be accountability on the other hand if if the question is are we ever going to get to talk about what captured all of those systems and allowed this to happen what allowed them to gaslight us like this what allowed them to gaslight the people that they coerced into being vaccinated and who then suffered and which they are continuing to do continuing to do if the only way to get to the phase where we say, well, now let's just look at what happened and make sure it doesn't happen again. If the only way there is truth and reconciliation, then I am on board because the future of humanity depends on us getting our captured system replaced and uncaptured. So on that note, uh, which is a positive, um, it's a hopeful forward looking. It's, I hope that we don't have such a long time between now and the next time we chat. Let's make sure that we don't. All right, Robert Malone, it has been a pleasure, and uh, I, I hope to see you again soon. Likewise.